the better you can understand something yourself and the better you can understand your end investor or buyer, the better off you'll be. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Sam Silverman. Sam, how are you doing today? Good, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for, for joining us. A little bit about Sam, CEO of uh, Silverman Capital. And uh, he has, over the last just couple of years, has raised over $50 million. He's also invested in uh, over 50 deals as an LP. And uh, so, man, just excited to have you on and just kind of dive in. Sam, why don't, why don't you, you know, look, that's not it, right? You've done a lot more. So why don't you give our listeners a bit more about your background and then we'll, we'll dive into some some details here. Yeah. So I started in like entrepreneurship and kind of sales really young. So I actually built an event planning company in high school mm-hmm. that I built up, uh, did fairly well with, actually sold when I was 15. Um, that kind of paid my way through college, kind of give you some some dollars to go play with there as well. Um, that was kind of more importantly, my first experience and kind of going out on your own and doing your own thing. And also my first experience managing a sales org. So if you look at what we did, we had 50 or so kids selling tickets in each school, right? It was kind of think of like a, you know, teen nightclub type thing. And, um, and that was kind of where it all started in the sense of, you know, understanding how to lead organizations, understanding that your upside's way more if you do things yourself. So kind of from there, went to college, played baseball, uh, realized that was in no way going to be a career, at least when I made money in. And um, from there, got into tech sales right away. Realized, okay, this is great for the time being, right? I'm learning a lot of great skills here in terms of prospecting, in terms of working with people, in terms of getting access to high earning folks. But I knew that was not what I wanted to do longer term. Yeah. So from there, kind of worked my way up, started leading large sales organizations as well uh, for a handful of years. And for me, like I had no clue what I wanted to go do. So I'm like, okay, in the time being, I'll just bust my ass and make as much money as possible. So that when I do figure out what I want to do, I have a lot more resources to go do it with, right? I, was, I knew I needed to work for myself, but I had no clue what that looked like. Um, eventually kind of stumbled into buying single family homes. I think I bought a portfolio of like 10 homes over the course of, I don't know, 15 months, 18 months. And realized that that was just not what I should be doing in the sense that I was, you know, I had a PM team in place, but I was still getting calls. I think my, I think I told the story a few times, like my, like switch that flipped, like, what am I doing? I had a uh, tenant drunkenly drive over a sewer pipe with their lawnmower. And I'm like, huh, this is just nothing that I want to be dealing with at all right now. Like being in sales, what people don't realize, especially in tech, is that, you know, half your compensation is your base salary, half your compensation is your variable component based on performance. So, but if you perform well, that variable component can be three, four, five, six X your base salary, right? All your upsides and no performance. So what I realized is that my time was just better spent working in my day job and then using that cash to go buy passive income versus trying to build it version and build it through sweat equity. So sold all those homes, started messing all my commission checks into LP deals. And uh, I think I was in 15, 16 or so deals. I'm like, okay, there's going to be a way I can get involved here more so. And what I've realized is that there's two things that really matter. At least at first it's you find a deal and for me finding deals were much more difficult because I feel like if you're not on it every single day and focusing on that just solely on that, it's really tough to go find deals. 
And the second piece is find money, right? So for me, that side was much easier for me in terms of my network I already had. My background was in training people how to go prospect, right? So kind of taking it over to the investor side of the house. And now, you know, two years later, we've done, um, I think unit count and AUM is a horrible metric for people who raise money, right? Like it's not like a true metric of what you're doing. Um, but yeah, you know, raised $50 million or so in the last while. Um, now like run a large fund for short rentals and still do a handful of their projects inside here as well, like multifamily, mobile home parks, debt. But yeah, that's kind of my, my background is to, here we are today. Left my corporate job, I don't know, six months back now. Love it. Love it. Um, so you, so you left your day job. So now you're doing this, this is what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I left awesome. it, I think in the end of Q3 last year, end of September, okay. um, Everyone knew it was coming. It was more a matter of when. But for me, I probably waited longer than most people would. And kind of the, the financial situation that I was in from a level of passive income and just business, you know, the foundation, right? For me, that I knew that I was losing focus being there already. I knew that if I, if I had to go leave and go back, I would be so just beaten down and would not be able to do the work at all. So, like, I waited a bit longer to know that once I leave, I'm good. Like, I don't have to go back ever. Um not in a place where I'd you know, want to live like forever, right? In terms of just the income that I had coming in passively, but in a place where I knew that I had enough buffer room where and runway where I can build the business to the point where I'll never have to go back. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's probably important. It, you know, you, man, you hate to, you hate to want to go or you hate to have to go back. Right. Um, that, that, that was, was something for sure. <laughs> yeah. That was something for sure with me too. Like when I quit, it was like, there's no, there's zero turning back. And I, I was a teacher, so it was a different story. I was making a lot less than you, what you were. But at the same time, I had my teaching license. A lot of people said, oh, you should keep up your, your teaching license just in case you go back. And I was like, I've, that's not even an no. option. Like, it's not an option. No. I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to pretend like there's an, even an opportunity to go back or even a possibility. Like, no, I don't want that teaching license anymore. Yeah, and helps you. And then kind of forcing yourself in scenarios, whether it be, you know, leaving your job or kind of pushing yourself in a certain area, right? Giving yourself something really tough to go after. Um, it forced you to go fucking work for it, right? Like, yeah. um, it's, it's a really good kind of fire lit under you. So, but yeah, in the same way, like for me, once I left, there was just a no way was I going back. Um, actually, a lot of like close friends who were like, why haven't you left already? Why haven't you left already? And I'm okay taking those extra, you know, six, nine months than most people would have, right? Maybe even a year. Um, longer, just so that I knew I was not going back. I work well under pressure. I don't work well under personal financial instability, right? Mm -hmm. So like I knew that would allow me to go do better work and have more peace of mind. And there's few things more valuable than peace of mind. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. You, you have to understand how, how you're going to work for sure on that. Um, to take me through this event, like you built an event planning company and you sold it. When, did you say you sold it when you were 15? Yeah. So we did teen night events. So think of like a, you know, teen club, like a, an event, right? We rent out an event space in the city. We used yeah. the event space that the, um, that uh, Fashion Week was in New York for a while, the Alton Building and 17th Street in New York. Um, you know, we'd have our fixed costs, right? So you have your venue, you have security, you have insurance, you have a DJ, you have kind of soft drinks, et cetera. Right. So we kind of pre-sell tickets ahead of time. I say we, it was myself and I, you know, one minority partner, um, pre-sell tickets, right. So basically get a kid in each school, right. They would then get a cut of each ticket they sold. So all commission-based sales. Um, so you had you know, literally no overhead and, um, you know, we'd sell tickets to, you know, build in some margin up front, 
and then the prices go through the roof at the door, right? So it's all a, you know, if you're missing outside play, we have kids who will pay 30, 40, 50 bucks ahead of time, and then $100 plus at the door, right? Hmm. So when you look at maximizing the space, you have, there were nights we did, you know, close to six figures in revenue in a night. And wow. um, your your margin on that are really strong because once you get your break even, it's all margin for you. So there's not much incremental cost based on people you have there. Um, but yeah, I think did six or so events and then actually sold the company. Um, basically, I, I like one-to-one revenue for the, uh, or one-to-one profit for the year. Wow. That's... Just because you you age out of it, right? Like it's only yeah. so long you can do that. And it was more so means to an end, right? Like that paid my way through high school, paid my way through college and some kind of runway there as well. And also helped my parents a lot too internally. Yeah. Did, did, were your parents a big involvement in this kind of company or was it more you led or what no, was it was that? entirely me. It was entirely you. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't like, Hey, go start a company. You got to figure, figure out what to do. No, no. I mean, they always knew what they was <laughs> encouraged the entrepreneurship side of it. Like they definitely yeah. supported from like the emotional standpoint, but no, that was, that was always me. I was need to do it. I need to do something. That's so impressive at uh, 50 or whatever, 14, 15, whatever you were, when you started it, sold it at 15. I mean, that's, that's so impressive. To... And it was also just fun too. Like that, that was yeah. definitely a fun, a fun you know, period of time. You got to party for free. Everybody else had to pay. <laughs> you, you made money while you're having fun and, and everybody else was paying. So that's awesome. Uh, let's talk about some of the, the um, kind of the, the real estate and, and your LP investments, what you're doing there. Um, I, I want to dive into, well, actually, first, before we get there, I want to dive into these, you know, the single families that you buy. You, you had this portfolio of, of uh, these rentals. Um, were those turnkey rentals or what What was that? So it was actually an interesting scenario of how I actually bought all those. So um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rootstock, right? I think like a single family marketplace. Yeah. So bought one home on there. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm like, I'll buy one home, see what happens. Spend a few bucks, um, I think, of dollars to spend, and then actually found the seller on the. I found his LLC on the closing documents to try and keep you really separate. Found him on LinkedIn, shot him a note. But long story short, he was a builder, a lot of bad debt. So these are all new construction homes, mm. and um, he had nine more homes or eight more homes. I forget what it was that he had under contract that he was really close to taking a bath on the loans. He had some personal stuff going on. Um, so I'm like, I'll buy every one of these houses from you at cost. I'll, co- I'll buy I'll buy all your construction debt out, delayed financing, enough cash, buy, enough to buy one in cash, right? And then you can buy it in cash, 45 days delayed financing. They, I was buying them for like 140 to 160. They're appraising for 190 to 220, right? So I was pulling out, you know, most of the dollars, if not all the dollars put into it. So fast forward, you know, a year and a half or a year and a quarter, whatever it was, 15 months or so. And I had, you know, nine, 10 homes that I bought with maybe 50 grand out of pocket all in. Yeah. Right. And so you have, you know, half million, you know, dollars of equity or so um, on them. And I was selling all those homes to Zillow uh, when they were still buying homes, uh-huh, just true. because the true. kind of price point that those were in were, yeah. you know, most of them would have been FHA loans, right? FHA loans are great at times for buyers who can qualify. But the issue is that if there's any kind of appraisal gap, there's any kind of financing gap, but there's a lot of risk as a seller in yep. FHA transaction because of how little money is there's down. If someone's buying half down and the appraisal comes in low, maybe they're 45% down in appraised value versus 50, right? Like nothing really changes in that transaction. When people are putting three and a half percent down and there's concession and closing costs, there's a lot of risk with that deal. 
uh, from the appraisal, from just the them qualifying, like all those things. So they were actually paying more than what I was going to list them for with a 1% fee versus a you know, 5, 5.5% fee, transaction fee from, from, a, from an agent. So really easy choice. And also just, you know, at that point too, like I was fine, just like, I want these gone. Yeah, um, luckily it worked out well, timing wise, but yeah, it was more to just get out of this. Yeah, and yeah. I freed up. It, it's, I, I, I love that you said, like, <laughs> you said you did this and, and because I've been saying it probably over the last couple of months, like, <clears throat> Hey, look, I mean, a lot of people go the route you want to go, you went where they, they buy these single families or duplex or small, these small buildings. And they, they've got a great income. You know, you're making good money. You're working. You realize like you can put the work in and you're going to make more money in your day job. And, but they sure. buy these rentals and they think they're going to be passive income. They think it's going to be, oh, I got a property management company, the whole world. Yeah, no shot. It's also it, like, it's crazy. People don't realize too that hey, if you can just get an extra point on your money and your portfolio is worth $300,000, that point not worth much. Right. So I think yeah. it's like depending what field you're in, right? Where if you're a $50,000 employee, that extra point or two could be meaningful for how you live. Right. Sure. But if you are a, you know, mid six figure high income earner type person, those extra points in a small portfolio, it's not okay. worth it. Right. Not like it's, it. it's much more worth it to go leverage your you know personal time to go be existential versus like eking out a few extra points on things. Um, so yeah, that's, that's going to take on it. Like spend your time where you have more upside until you get to a place where your portfolio is big enough for those few points matter. Right. Like if you have a $10 million portfolio and you can tweak it a few points, it's really meaningful. Right. But if you have a $300,000 portfolio, then nothing's wrong with that at all. But it's more so just understanding what the actual return is overall versus, hey, we got a few percent here or there. Yeah. 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 So many people get burned out and swear off real estate because they're working their full time job and they thought that buying these single family homes or duplexes were going to be passive. And they're like, holy crap, I'm spending all my time at the toilets, tennis, and trash. And those are the people that are swearing about the toilets, tennis, and trash is because yeah. they, they thought it was this passive income deal. So, what's the difference now, you know, or, or I guess now you've quit your job, but prior to quitting your job, you were raising money, you raised $50 million in the last two years which is awesome by the way congratulations on that um but you were putting work in so what was the difference why did you feel like hey that's a route to go versus you know before when you're buying these single family homes you're like this is not a route to go so i saw it from the lp standpoint so to take a step back there further actually i think if you look at raising capital or, or kind of you know and then on the higher side of it it's sales it's 100 percent sales mm -hmm. right um, never like a hard sell, but it's still a, a sales type motion. And um, what I realized was that the better you can understand something yourself and the better you can understand your end investor or buyer, the better off you'll be. And if you're going to take a step back and think about it, I was my exact profile investor, right? VP of sales, high income, invest as an LP already, right? So like that, that storyline is really easy to go communicate to others looking for something similar, right? And people would always ask you about, what you're doing, um, kind of taking that level of prospect man I already had from training people on doing that to um, to the side of the business, right? So it became a really easy transition for me to go do that. Um, but yeah, I kind of realized like as an LP, like it's just it's so simple, right? Like, like you're really just buying passive income and you're getting into better projects with no loan process, 
right? No, no risk outside of your capital, right? Like all those things that you may worry about in a normal kind of single family deal or like a deal you do yourself, all the levels of risk that you take on. Um, yeah, I, I like, so kind of saw that and then realized that it was just, you're now selling something that you generally believe in that you actually enjoy doing. And it's also, um, yeah, it's a lot more upside in general. Raising money with a full-time job. And were you, were you worried? I was working 80 to hundred hours a week like, for, <laughs> their, for their, that period of time. Like now I've cut back dramatically and I, you know, I raise more money in much less time now, but at first, like it's a fucking grind. Like anyone yeah. who wants to get shit that like skip that shortcut. I think it's really easy for people to go look at it. Like, Oh, you became obsessed overnight. Yeah. After fucking thousands of hours of work doing it. Right. I think people miss that entirely. Mm. Um, like I had a full VP level job on the sales side, mid six figure role and still doing it. And people are just, most people are way too, like way too lazy, like just in general. Um, like they want certain things and they don't understand the path of getting there. Um, but yeah. Were you ever worried about your, you know, employer going, Hey, no, what are you he, doing? Was, he was well aware. They, they were. I worked okay. with the same boss for three times over a six year period. Yeah, right. The nice thing about being in sales is that it's performance based, right? Yeah. Where if you hit your numbers in the right organizations, nothing else matters, right? Like, don't be a uh, you know cancer to the culture. Hit your numbers, and you can do whatever you want in terms of it's not always not hurting anyone else. You're fine. Yeah. That's how it should be. It that's was that way for be. me. That that's how it should be in terms of how people approach it. But yeah, as long as my performance was fine and worked, he didn't care else. You know what I was doing. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the way it should be. I know that's not the way it is on with everybody, but that's definitely the way. And also it depends kind of what role you're into, right? Like sales performance based where like it's metrics, black and white, other yeah. roles may actually require more hands-on time, but if you can get more done in less time and the right organizations, they're totally fine with it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Um, as an LP, what, <laughs> there's a lot, right? We could have a whole episode on, on being an LP and what you look for and all that kind of stuff, but maybe a couple things that you're really paying attention to as you're looking at deals as it was well, an LP and as a, as somebody that's raising capital for that deal. Cause now you're, now you're not only investing in the deal, but you're raising capital uh, as well for the deals. Um, so, so now you even have to be probably more careful because now you got other people's money involved. So yeah, if I lose my own money, I don't like, not that I don't care, but that's just, you lose your own money, right? Like you yeah, don't make it back, yeah. right? You lose someone else's money. There's a lot more tied to in terms of reputational issues, um, track record type stuff, yeah. right? Like Pride referrals, issues. it costs, it costs <laughs> I mean, you a lot more than it does with just the money, right? Like yeah. you lose your own money, fuck cares. Not, not, not that it's not important, but you can go make it back in a period of time. Yeah. 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 You know, you can make it make, well, and you're only hurting yourself, right? You, you know, not again, like you're not out there to lose money. You're out there to make money on your own money. But if you lose other people's money, that's, I mean, you have that entirely different. Yeah. It's entirely <clears throat> different. So what are, what are a couple, what are some things that you're really looking for when you look at a deal? What's like the, there's three know, things. Three, so yeah. there's three categories of it. One, every single time is the people, right? Like, mm. And the people you want to see a few things, something, something, something to lose. And I actually don't prefer financials. So most people, you know, like I want to see a sponsor have this much in the deal. I don't care. I'd rather see a sponsor who's bigger, who puts less into the projects because they do too many deals that they have the reputational piece of it behind them, right? Like the social media presence, they have the branding behind it, where if something goes south, that reputation is worth a lot more than the few million dollars they could have in that deal potentially. 
Yeah. Right. So I think that's a really big portion of it. Um, I think just like, you know, I manage my entire mom's portfolio for her, like her retirement that if that ever goes south. I'm you know the one supplementing that. Right. So like I, if I wouldn't put her money with someone from an ethical gut feeling standpoint, no shot. Um, so I think just the people in terms of the track record, the experience they have, the who they are as people, right? Like what they gave up to go do what they're doing today, what risk they have in the deal themselves. And that can be cash, it can be reputational, it can be branding, whatever that may be. Hmm. I think second, you look at what it also just on the Islam side too, like how they communicate, right? Like investor experience matters a lot almost much as returns, especially because if you're raising money, right? Say you're doing a deal, it's a five-year hold and the deal's in hold all five years. You don't people have to go wait to the deal to sell in five years to go reinvest. You want to give them a good experience and confidence that you're doing the right things today. They can go reinvest much quicker because if you're doing that, you're going to run out of people really quickly to go raise capital from um, right. and you're just hurt yourself drastically. So it's the people. Second is the kind of market and asset class that you're in, right? Like so say multi, you know, job growth, population growth, job diversity, right? Those things that you typically see um, to give you kind of good feeling at the market itself. And actually to me, the deal is third, right? Like the deal itself. Um, so I'd say kind of those three, three things, right? People, market, or asset class, and deal. And making sure that the deal actually aligns to what it is that you're looking for, right? Like the whole period, the, you know, what's the, what's the downside? What's the upside? What like, was the cash flow play? Is an equity play? Um, how realistic is the underwriting, right? Like I've never seen, you know, people don't say, Hey, this is conservative underwriting. Like if everything's conservative, nothing's conservative, right? Like I'm going to look at things. So, um, yeah, today those three things are really important when you go look at a project, a deal, an operator to evaluate it doesn't make sense for you. But for me, it's people matter more so than everything else. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It, it, it's everybody's everybody's got conservative underwriting. So, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. uh, no, no, we'll no one person is going to go, Hey, we're, Hey, we're super aggressive. I don't think we can hit these metrics, but you know, invest in my deal. No, uh, like for example, I have one partner I've done a handful of deals, but two, I've actually pushed me more aggressive and how they go by. Um, because he is one of the most conservative people I've ever in my entire life, which is great, but it's also like, I push him a little bit more too, just because there are more deals that he could do that still are, extremely rational and reasonable. Um, so it's nice for people like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, and that's nice as a kind of an outsider looking into sometimes as, as the GP, you know, you're just, you're kind of, you're looking at your own box. Right. And so if somebody else is on the outside is looking, that's, we, we all always have other people looking at other eyes, looking at our deals, because it's nice to hear some like, Hey, did you look, think about this? Did you think about this? Or, sure. oh, Hey, you're, you're, maybe you're being too aggressive or maybe you're being too conservative or, you know, whatever. So it's nice to have someone like you that can look at the deal and go, Hey, this is, this is what's going on. This is what I see. Um, red flags. What's like a, you know, a big red flag, something that you'd say, we're not doing this deal. Have you, have you done, have you seen something like that where you're just like, you know, equity. what is it? Pref pref equity. equity. Yeah. So you would so pref pref. So nine out of 10 times I would not touch prep equity, depending how it's structured. Right. So like, for example, it typically sits above the typically have debt prep equity yeah. and then, you know, common equity, LP equity. Um, Nine out of ten times, I will not touch a prep equity deal. It's Ex too much explain, risk. Explain that for my listeners. I think a lot of them might so not, for first example, of all understand what prep equity is, and second of all, why would that 
be the best. So for example, prep equity takes a senior position to LP equity in the uh, waterfall, right? So your all your expenses are paid first, your debt, right? And then from there, the prep equity gets their share. So if there's ever a bad deal that you're doing, right? So say there's, it's a $3 million raise, they have a million dollars of prep equity and $2 million of LP capital, right? That million dollars of prep equity gets priority both in terms of returns and return of capital. So any dollars that you lose in the transaction comes out of the LP share versus the prep equity share, right? And also all cash flow, the prep equity has to hit their, their points prior to the LP equity getting theirs. And right now with deals being tighter, LP equity is being squeezed there. So it's easier for the sponsor to go raise it. It's typically cheaper equity when looking at, you know, an ARR versus a LP equity, right? If you, if you hit, assuming you, you hit your pro forma, right? Um, so they'll go take it on. It's larger checks. It's cheaper equity, but they get better position in the stack. So they're much more likely to hit their returns versus LPs in that scenario. So it can actually boost LP returns quite a bit. But to me, so, and the reason it does that is that their cap typically, you typically see a pref and maybe an accrual. So say it's a, you know, an eight and a six, right? Or an eight and a four. So called eight and four means they get 8% prep on their money. Upon the accrual or upon the exit, they get the extra 4% prior to the LPs getting their profit sharing slip behind the pref. So yeah. what that does though, is it puts risk. So it raised the ceiling slightly because they're capped in their returns. So if you overperform, all the upside goes to the LP and the GP, right? But if you underperform, they get paid before the LPs do and much lower in the floor. So to me, that trade-off for potentially higher floor, a potentially higher ceiling for much lower floor isn't worth the risk when looking at preserving investor capital. Yeah. So you'd rather see, just see a deal where all the money is all the money after the the debt is treated the Correct. same. Correct. I mean, like you can have some cl classes of shares that are, you know, if they're super small. Right, like say it's a ten million dollar raising a million dollars, the class A share that's you know nine, ten percent, right? Of just common equity without voting rights and still paid out the same therefore after. Um, that's fine. But if you're seeing like really big percentages go to the pref equity, the bigger the risk. The smaller yeah. that piece of the pie is, the less risk there is because less capital be paid out. The bigger it is, the more risk you have in that scenario. Yeah. No, yeah, I could couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a you you have to think of the, I mean, you're just in that second position, right? So the pref equity in, in a lot of scenarios might be getting paid. They might get their entire principal back. They, they, they get their profits, but then there's nothing left for the LP in that case. Correct. The property underperforms, or there's maybe very little, but there could be nothing left. And there could be actually negative, right? These, these You're going, hey, you know, we've paid everything out. I'm sorry, but your hundred thousand dollars, we only got twenty thousand dollars to pay to pay you. Like, and, and that's not, that's like not even profit. Just we're just gonna give you 20, 20 grand of your hundred grand back. And that, that could yeah. easily happen in that type of scenario, uh, because they are in second position or really third position behind the behind the senior debt. Um what's a mistake that you've made? Uh, it doesn't, doesn't have to be done, any... done a deal with prep equity. My first deal I ever did. <laughs> so the reason, there yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, is that kind of what happened? Did you not make a profit the, on that? The, no, the, the deal's not done yet, but it's just like looking back on it, I just wouldn't have structured that way or done a deal like that ever again. Sure. Um, because of how big the prep equity stack was relative to the LP stack. Yeah. Yeah. And like what, I guess, the deal's not done. So why then why are you 
saying, hey, I just wouldn't do it it's again. It's just unnecessary there... risk. So you're just seeing that the, that the risk profile, you're not necessarily Correct. underperforming yet. You don't know, but no, this, this deal still could pan out fine. Um, yeah. But it's, there's just not a reason to take on that level of risk. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, you know, this was two years ago, the first deal I did, right. That's mm-hmm. something that I wasn't truly aware of, like the implication of what that could look like. Um, but yeah, going forward, we'll not touch you like that ever again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with, with how you explain it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. So, um, what, um, somebody who wants to raise money, there's a lot of people I talk to that would just that want to raise money and raising $50 million in two years, you know, I mean, geez, like most people would just be extremely excited to be able to raise $5 million in two years that I talked to. They struggle to get off the ground. They struggle to, to raise the money. What are what's like one or two things, three, maybe three things that you think are keys to why you're successful beyond just like, Hey, um, you know, I have an awesome network. Is there, or maybe, maybe it's how you built that network. It could be, but. So people get way too general with who their profile of investor is. Mm. Like I ask most people and they're like busy professionals. I'm like, dude, you fucking kidding me. Um, like you need to be insanely specific and I can give you an example of what mine looks like. So I have two profiles of investors on the retail side, right? One is kind of the up and comer, right? They're kind of you know, up and comer and the executive up and comer. Think of a mid-market account executive to a director of sales. They're 24 to 35 years old. They between 150 and $300,000 per year. Probably worth a hundred grand and maybe a million bucks to pop in at the pad, any kind of exits or material commission checks. And for them, they give you money as they receive it, right? From a commission check and equity vest and um, not not your biggest check writers, but they're people that over time can grow into the executive type role. And also if you do write for them when they're young, they're not going anywhere too in terms of uh, lifetime values. So a 24-year-old kid making 200 grand a year as an account executive could be a $10 million investor over his lifetime with you. So yeah. there's still yeah. value in that. The second profile person is more of the executive, right? 35 to you know 55 years old. They are a VP of sales, CRO, co-founder of a company. They're between a half million dollars and $10 million plus, depending if they've had any exits. I've had a few people who have some bigger tech exits. And for them, it's more of a relationship type prove it concept, right? Where they get much bigger equity vests, they get much bigger checks. They, they may have a brokerage account money into it. They can move over an old 401k. They can go convert to a self-directed, right? So for them, it's more of, hey, do right by me and you have a lot more coming. And I also have a lot more people I know in that same bracket who I can introduce you to if things go well. That's why earlier I hit on how important the investor experience is, right? When someone gives their money, because if you're say you're, you know, CRO making a million dollars a year investing with me, right. And your experience is terrible the entire time. Even if we nail the exit, they're not going to give us any more money until the exit then. Right. So that's five years of dead time that I could have had with you. Yeah, right. You're not so, going to give any referrals. You're not going to, yep. You're not going to invest new money. Right. When you look at kind of sponsors who you go partner with in the capital raising side of it, making sure they have a good investor experience is equally as important as do they perform on their deals. Right. right. Because that's your, it's more sellable. Right. It's easier to get referrals that way. Right. So like all those things are really important um, when looking at kind of that side of it. Yeah. So, so really just dial in who that, who that your ideal investor is be very specific. I mean, you're, be as you're specific as possible, very yeah. specific. You're even doing age ranges. I mean, you're very specific on who you're, who you're going after and the reason of, why. 
Yeah, and I can know someone's LinkedIn and tell you how much they make within a range, right? Um, so I think it's also important to like make sure your profile person actually has money to invest. Like if your if your target construct work make 50 grand a year, nothing's wrong with that profession at all, but it's more so be realistic as to who can give you capital and how often. Um, but yeah, that's not it, right? So make sure they actually have money to go invest and make sure you have access to get in front of them. Right. So if you access them, what I mean by that is that, you know, say for example, you're like, I want to go target doctors, right? Like I have no clue to get in front of doctors personally. I know that for me, all the salespeople, they need LinkedIn to do their job. They live on LinkedIn, right? So I can go one, pull a big list of them really quickly. And two, I know they're checking it frequently as their business ties to it, and the success of the role ties to it. So you've accessed them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's figuring out doctors be a great profile. I don't have access to them. If you're a doctor, you maybe you're in groups of doctors, right? Like where that could play up or go to conferences, like, like whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. But it's making sure that you're very specific, you have messaging and, and related build to them, you know where to find them and they actually have money to go invest, right? Like those yep. things and you're you're in good shape. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then go like do the fucking work. Like people, like oh, I talked to three people this week, I'm really slammed. I'm like my first, my first deal I did, I made 400 plus phone calls that week right alone, finding people to go talk to you about it. And like people want those shortcuts of like, oh, I, I wrote an ebook, no one's coming in. Go find them. Yeah, yeah. You can't just sit back and assume they're coming to you. That doesn't, that no just doesn't happen. You. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't happen. I mean, certainly- 99% of the capital raise has been outbound. Yeah, right. And as you raise capital, as you've, now raised 50 over 50 million dollars now capital starts to come to you but it wasn't it wasn't that's not how you got started at all that's and you still have to work for it like it's not like you're not working for it today it's not like it just you're just sitting back and waiting and the capital is just flowing in freely it's happening more right you're getting more referrals probably you're you've got more frequent investors investors that are reinvesting in deals investors that hearing you on you know podcasts or things like that that are calling you and and reaching out to you but it's still you doing work and it's still you having outbound re, you know outreach to them yeah no i i completely agree like it's um Nice thing too, like this business is so scalable because once you kind of have that conversation with someone, they're in your list, they're investors, as long as you don't mess things up, they're pretty loyal. And um, you can always work on kind of top of the funnel for yourself, right? Find new people to go talk to, networking. Um, yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's switch gears. Um, favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners? So there's a couple I really like. Um, one is Persuasion, right? More a um psychology book than anything else i think the biggest thing people can go learn is like stop reading real estate books like stop reading real estate books it's all the same shit in there anyway like you'll spend three podcasts all the same right like people do things a little bit differently but it's all the same type of stuff with that kind of stuff so persuasion is more on the psychology side of understanding you know how do you get people to do things that you wanted them to do and they feel as though it's on their own um accord Another one too that I love is just the art and science of winning and losing. Just like more you can understand how people think and operate, the better off you'll be in raising capital in sales. I think sales applies to everything. Um, so understanding how to how to motivate people, how to drive people to certain directions where they feel as it's a mutual win. Nothing's more valuable than that. Understanding someone thinks is really crucial as well. Like I think part of it too in like investor conversations is putting people in boxes and not in the sense of like everyone's the same, but 
you can quickly kind of profile people too. Like take, for example, the, you know, Joe who was raised in a family that was worth hundred million dollars versus, you know, Rick who came to America, you know, 10 years ago and came from nothing and is now worth $20 million. A very different type of conversations that you're having with mm -hmm. those people just because of how their view is on money. Right. Mm -hmm. And like all of it's assumption based and you kind of, you get, you, you kind of push people a certain way and, and, and get a reaction from them, but it helps a lot in understanding how you position the same deal. Whereas with Joe, you may position the upside, whereas Rick, you may position how you, how you protect, protect the downside. Yeah. People who are afraid of losing all of it versus people who are, you know, just want to see how much they can earn. So yeah. you just understand things like that as to how you position things. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's good. Uh, so art and science is, is that, is, that's the one that kind of, you're talking about the last art and science of winning and losing. Is that what it was? Yeah. That kind of digs a lot into just like how people think. And psychology. then persuasion is more so is definitely a psychology book too. Cool. Love them. Um, all right. Last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? One is don't lose money. Yes. Right. Like it's a lot. So don't strike out. And I think that why it's important is that if you like, as long as you stay in the game, like, and you can ride things out, you should be fine. Yeah. Um, so bet on people, right? Like invest in people as well. Um, I think people miss this step really often of trying to do things and think themselves and not hiring people and not investing in relationships. So I think it's, don't lose money, invest in people, um, and take calculated risks that give you more upside than downside, right? Like, for example, you know, when you look at what's your worst case scenario and your upside is much better than your worst case scenario relatively, right? Like take risks, but like take calculated risks. I think people have the, the, the risk of doing nothing, I think is so important too, right? If like do something, um, be smart about like take action, do something. Yeah. Absolutely. Love it. Sam, uh, really appreciate you joining us. Um, lots of good info. Love diving into some of the details here. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more about what you got going on? So I'm super active on LinkedIn and then um, my website, silvermancapital.co or the uh, STR fund that I run called techbuster.com. So any of those few places, we're super active in all those. Awesome. Again, Sam, really appreciate it. And uh, man, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Yeah, you as well. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. It's a rating and review. Just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go up to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. 
Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.